Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on Thursday the 6th of October. My name is Freddie Gray, I am the Deputy Editor of The Spectator and I will be your host today. On the show we're going to be talking about the Tory party conference, which you may have noticed was this week. Has Liz Trust managed to get herself out of trouble with her speech? I'll be joined by James Forsyth, our politics editor, and Katie Balls, our deputy politics editor, to discuss. After that, we will be discussing whether Trustonomics is finished. I'll be joined by Kate Andrews, our economics editor, and the head of the Institute for Economic Affairs, Mark Littlewood. We will then move into global affairs and the terrifying story of Putin and nuclear war. I'll talk to Mark Galliotti and Elbridge Colby, about the likelihood of Putin's nuclear strike and what the West response might be. We will then move to Brazil, where there is a very interesting presidential election going on. We've just had the first round and we will have the second round on October the 30th. I am joined by Andrew Downey, who is in Sao Paulo. And lastly, we will talk about cigarettes and giving them up. Rod Little has just quit smoking. I'll be asking him why and how. And before we get started, let's thank our sponsors, Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to The Spectator's YouTube channel? Uh, click the button at the bottom of your screen to subscribe and then tap the bell icon to make sure you never ever miss an episode. Let's start with the big political story of the week, which was, of course, Liz Truss, uh, the state of her premiership and Tory party conference. Um, I'm joined now by our top politics duo, uh, James and Katie. James, um, Liz Truss's speech yesterday uh, went okay. There were no major uh, mishaps. It wasn't a disaster, um, which, given the state of the conference, uh, I think you'd probably say it was quite a boon, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think it was a relief for her because nothing is worse at the end of a speech than it was beforehand. I think it went down relatively well with the hall uh, and with the MPs present. But I think this conference, you can't get round two facts. One, Liz Truss has had to back away from uh, a big policy, the abolition of the 45p tax rate. And you, you can say, oh, it doesn't, it wasn't, it wasn't going to, it wasn't that big a tax cut in the grand scheme of things. All this is true. But Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's decision to abolish it was meant to be totemic. It was meant to show that they weren't going to be slaves to what they see as a kind of social democratic consensus. And so the fact that they have had to uh, retreat from that is also totemic. I mean, the other thing we saw this week as well is, is how ill-disciplined uh, the cabinet are. It, it was at times like the height of the Brexit debates in the Theresa May era, where kind of every half an hour a cabinet minister seemed to come out of a different position, uh, with, with no uh, thought to collective discipline or, or, or anything like that. And so I think it's, I mean, can uh, Liz Truss reassert authority within her, her own cabinet and her own party? And also, you know, the Tories throughout this conference were behind by 20 points plus in the polls. Is that going to get better for them? Katie, have you been struck, and how, with your knowledge of uh, Team Trust, have they been struck by the lack of support they have from even within their own cabinet and certainly the broader party? I think there's definitely a frustration in Downing Street at some of the freelancing by ministers at this conference. Um, so, for example, Penny Morden in an interview um, saying that she believed that benefits should rise in line with inflation. That is not, uh, you know, that's currently a subject of debate in terms of what the government is going to do on it. All the indications that Liz Trust plans to actually uh, rise in line with wages instead. So I think... Examples like that have taken some of Liz Truss's team aback, and it, 
and is just adding to this sense of, uh, you know, what does she need to do now to get grip? And I think probably from last week going into conference, I think there's been a slow dawning realization of some of the realities of Liz Truss's political situation. Um, Because I think when you're in Downing Street, uh, when parliament is not sitting, when you're speaking to like-minded people or just your aides, it can be uh, probably a bit more reassuring than perhaps the reality outside the building. And I think being at party conference, uh, you know, having to do lots of media, meeting with people, meeting with MPs, means that um, Liz Truss is now much more aware of the problems with some of her strategy. And I think it's also why we did end up seeing that U-turn. Because the 45p U-turn, if you were looking for the most graceful way to do that, given lots of people saying this is not going to hold, I think you would have kick-started your conference. So the big sit-down Sunday interview she did with Laura Coonsberg on the BBC to say, we're doing this and we're ploughing on. Instead, it came uh, you know, late, on, uh, late in the evening once conferences started after that interview was only when they really changed tack. And I think it does point to the fact that it's taken a while for Downing Street and the Prime Minister to get up to speed with the problems they're facing. James, uh, Liz Truss was in some ways the continuity Johnson candidate. Um, Certainly those closest to Boris Johnson um, supported her quite strongly from from the outset. Uh, But in your piece, you suggest that um, even they may be turning. Is that not right? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, for example, it's a small thing in the grand scheme of things. But I think uh, several of Boris Johnson's close allies expressed disappointment to me that there had been no mention, for example, of him in her conference speech, that she hadn't gone out of her way to pay tribute to him. And I think this shows how difficult things are because you know, they, they backed Liz Truss because uh, they thought that she, unlike lots of other people running in the leadership, had had no part in his downfall. But now that she is setting out a very distinctive, far more uh, libertarian, small state Toryist view, I think they are, they are turning. Lots of things that, they, that he considers to be part of his legacy, um, she appears to be diluting. And so I think he is. I think there is a there is a tension there among the, among the Johnsonites. Katie, isn't the bigger, broader problem for the Tories, as a lot of people are already suggesting, uh, if you, and especially if you look at the polls, um, that they are clapped out, that they've been in power for too long, uh, the party is sort of seems to be eating itself alive, uh, and no prime minister, um, and it seems not Liz Truss, uh, is able to bring them together. Yeah, I think that is a large part of the problem. We can sit here and say there's trusted X wrong, Y wrong. Clearly, the not so many budget. I think, I think all involved now, except with, with the gift of hindsight, perhaps listening to somebody at the time that could be handled much better. But I think also having spent you know four days in Birmingham, this is a party which, and this is not a unique insight. Lots of people have said it to to me, as I'm sure they have to James. You know, which is looking pretty ungovernable. Uh, you have a situation where there's lots of MPs that can't quite decide what they want the party to be. You had Boris Johnson, he tried to occupy that centre ground with um, some of these policies and at the time lots of members were saying this is awful we're not being conservative enough you had Rishi Sunak who was obviously making the pitch for fiscal responsibility um, but then you had lots of people saying well that's not going to be enough in terms of tax cuts then you have Liz Truss who was moving the party to the right in some of those ways and now that's leading to a big backlash from MPs saying well actually no the voters don't want this and you don't have the mandate to do so so it's quite hard to work out what exactly would unite the party? I think there was some hope in Liz Truss's team early on that actually just the prospect of a snap election in a year and a half, two years' time would be enough to really make MPs work together, vote free things. I think the problem is, uh, partly because of the mishandling in terms of the fiscal event, you now have a situation where the polls are clearly pointing to something which, if repeated, and, and you can expect, I think, the polls to change to some degree before an election, um, but if repeating election would pretty much mean electoral annihilation for the Tories. And that means it's much harder to convince MPs to say, oh, if you just get more behind the reforms that are currently looking quite unpopular, that's what's going to secure your seat. And it means you're in a situation where there's not really any good options. There's lots of people talking about how long Liz Truss can stay in position. There's not really an easy mechanism to do that. But more importantly, there's not really an easy answer as to what would uh, you know, be better and have the party unite. James, if, if the problem is uh, much bigger than trust and it's the party, 
what is the real issue there? Is it that the ideology of conservatism is, conservatism isn't an ideology, I suppose, but is it that the, the party doesn't know what it stands for? Um, are there too many different factions? Are the tribes too opposed to each other? I think it's two things. One, as you say, Freddie, it's a certain level of ideological confusion. The Tory party isn't quite sure what it believes now. And then I think the second problem is the party is becoming unwhippable because there are so many former ministers now on the back benches because you know, the Tory party has not only changed leader four times in six years, it has also changed the cast of characters because there have been these kind of purges every time a new leader has come in. Which means that you know, you've got a lot of people who, who, who aren't prepared to vote through things that they might not like because they, they, they aren't bothered about whether, they, whether they're going to blot their copybook with the whips or not because they're not looking for a promotion. They've had their time in ministerial office and so they are now much more inclined to, 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 to simply do what they want to do. Uh, and I think this is, one of, I, I think this is a, a big problem. And I mean, and because, as Katie said, Liz Truss didn't seek to build a big tent when she put together her government, uh, that that problem has become exacerbated. I, I think ideologically, the Tory party has in some ways become unmoored. It is not quite sure yet, uh, at the moment, what it stands for, what it wants to stand for in this post-Brexit world. Katie, uh, do you think uh, that Liz Truss has not had a political honeymoon? Quite clearly, she's been thrown in uh, at the very deep end and seems to be struggling to swim. Uh, but that, uh, that she might have a delayed honeymoon um, after this speech, which does seem to have calmed the waters a little bit. So I think honeymoon is probably the wrong word uh, in the sense. I think she might have a, a period of you know calmer waters than she's had the past you know week or so. Um, but yet still, you know, that speech did calm nerves. I spoke to MPs after who said she, she should be given the time to do this. And I think, interestingly, lots of MPs I've spoken to, some who backed Rishi Sunak, were complaining more about Michael Gove and what is he, he is up to um, of all his interventions on the 45p and so forth, um, as much as people were complaining about Liz Truss. So there's lots of anger, but it's not 100% clear. You know, it's pointed in lots of directions as this big almost blame game plays out. I think what is tricky for Liz Truss is effectively the, the Commons returns next week. There's lots of votes. She wants to push through supply-side reform. That means quite tricky votes on things like planning. And is the party currently in a position where MPs are going to get behind her? I think Liz Trust needs something to refocus minds. And I don't know where she can get a political win from. But I think that the fallout from the not-so-many budget, the fact there is infighting at conference means the speech did probably the, the most it could do. Um, but I think she needs something else to say back me, things will calm down. Let's talk briefly about uh, Michael Gove, James. You, you mentioned him in your piece. I mean, he seems to be a, a dramatic figure inside the party, no matter who is Prime Minister, and no matter whether he's in or out of favour. Um, tell me what he's up to. So I think Michael Gove and Liz Truss, you know, there is both personal and political animus between them. Um, if you think back to the beginning of Liz Truss's career, she was a junior minister in Michael Gove's department. They were both reformers. But she feels that he's kind of lost his reforming zeal, that he is part of this kind of, you know, social democrat consensus at the moment and has become kind of very nanny statish and very controlling. He looks at her and sees someone who he views as more of a libertarian than a conservative. And, and I think he feels that, and this is why I think he kept talking about the 2019 manifesto at conference, he feels that, you know, Liz Truss doesn't have a mandate for what she's doing, how she's trying to reform what, 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 what the Conservative Party stands for. And so he's just going to say his piece. Um, I, I, think that, that I think Liz Truss would have been better off to, have, to, to be crude, to have had Michael Gove inside the tent pissing out rather than outside the tent pissing in. I mean, she, it would have, he would have been a perfect choice, for example, to be Health Secretary. You know, it is still the biggest risk to the Tories is that the NHS falls over this winter or next. And if Michael Gove had prevented that from happening, and he is the most effective departmental minister the Tories have, uh, that would have benefited Liz Truss. And if he'd failed, then his political career would have been over. And, but I think that this tension between Gove and Truss, you know, this is, this is going to be a running theme of this government in the next few years. Katie and James, thank you very much indeed. Now, is Trussonomics dead on arrival? Uh, I'm joined now by Kate Andrews, our economics editor, and Mark Littlewood, who is Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. 
Kate, you write in the magazine this week that you think Liz Trust may be setting back the cause of free market economics, which, as we know, is dear to your heart. Um, why do you think this is so? So it's only been a matter of weeks since Liz Trust entered Downing Street. Uh, and already the rollbacks and the U-turns that she's have, had to make, I think, are, are really damaging to the free market cause. And I should say, they started before she actually won the leadership race. They started during the leadership campaign uh, when she picked up the idea of regional pay boards, which is a really good, really sensible reform when it comes to public sector pay. It would enable regions to actually recruit more public sector workers uh, that they are in short supply of. It would allow for more performance-related pay to actually give people in the civil service uh, who are doing a fantastic job uh, more pay. Uh, and she picked it up completely un underprepared to defend the policy, and it was dropped within a matter of hours. And the thing about dropping policy like that is it doesn't take it off the agenda for the leadership campaign. It takes it off the agenda probably for a decade. And I think we've seen something similar with the 45p tax rate U-turn. Liz Truss is now talking about reviving it, a U-turn on the U-turn, but frankly, it is so much harder to talk about major tax reform and tax simplification when you A, haven't tried to make the argument, and B, then go ahead and, and U-turn and, and show that actually uh, you can essentially be pushed into to, uh, rolling back what you originally said. My concern is that none of this is helping the free market movement. It doesn't put a good spin on the free market movement. It's killing free market ideas and policies. And don't get me wrong, it's fantastic that Liz Truss has everybody talking about economic growth now. I'm not saying that you know she hasn't made some improvements in the few weeks that she's been in Downing Street, but I think she has a real responsibility as somebody who has always loved to represent the cause, to make sure that the cause is, uh, you know, is, is thought to be um, successful coming out of her premiership as well as the country. You know, I, th I think she has a lot of things she's juggling here. Um, but it would be such a shame if we got to the end of the Liz Trust premiership and people actually had a worse view of free market economics. Mark, uh, on paper, Liz Trust did look like the, the ideal IEA prime minister. But in practice, so far, anyway, things don't seem to be going so well. Uh, how do you feel about Trustonomics and how it's being applied? Yeah, I've got a lot of sympathy with what um, Kate says there, because... It seems to me that we've got the most sort of free market leaning government one could expect. I mean, you know, I would like the government to be even more free market leaning than this. But if you were trying to construct a government of of any set uh, out of the 650 MPs that we've got in the House of Commons, this is probably sort of the, the bunch that you'd pick to be most likely in the free market direction. But I, I share with Kate the view that the uh, it's been, well, to put it at its mildest, an inauspicious start. So I'm in, I find myself in the kind of nightmare position that we've got a libertarian leaning free market-ish government who really do seem finally to be sort of picking off the shelves of the IA some policy ideas and implementing them, which is what a think tank would ultimately want. But the political execution has been absolutely dreadful. And um, if she makes a complete horlicks of it, which uh, basically she has so far, her administration has so far, it's been a politically inept, let's be honest about it, um, then I share Kate's concern. But I'm going to refer back to one of my great heroes, a former manager of Southampton Football Club, Nigel Atkins, who said, control the controllables. Um, and I, I, I don't work at number 10 Downing Street. I you know, have absolutely no input on their, you know, their comms plan or the sequencing of their announcements. So I, I, I feel myself in the unenviable position where sort of, if you like, the IEA might get the blame for anything that goes wrong or other or the free market movement in general without having any of the responsibility over it. But here's the kind of case for the defence, I guess. Let's assume that uh, Kate and I, rather than being sort of non-partisan, keen free marketeers, were instead non-partisan, keen Marxists. What would we have made of the rise of Jeremy Corbyn to the leadership of the Labour Party? Surely one part of us would have been punching the air. Suddenly our faction on the left, having been doing nothing for decades other than writing pamphlets that a small people, small number of people listen to and making an occasional splash in the media, suddenly we've got control of one of the great British political parties. But we would be similarly tearing our hair out about how utterly inept and incompetent the Corbyn leadership was, even if it was ideologically aligned. So I do agree with 
Kate's criticism insofar as it's a matter of sort of political execution. U-turns are bad news. Um, but I can't fix that bit. So I remain in the position of wishing the Trust administration well, broadly. I haven't agreed with everything it's done, even in policy terms, let alone in uh, execution terms. But we are where we are. And, you know, a really glum fact for kind of libertarian leading free marketeers to conjure with is this is probably as good as it ever gets for us. That is coming. It's a very neat parallel because uh, you, you radical free marketeers are sometimes called the Marxists of the right. Um, Kate, I do wonder, thinking about the politics, reading your piece, you talk about how there, there is a need. It's difficult to sell free market classical liberalism uh, it, it, politically. It's a difficult sell. Do you worry, Mark ended on a glum note there, do you think that perhaps it's just too difficult to implement proper free market economics in today's political world? I don't think it is because I, I believe that so many of the free market policies offer the right solutions. Uh, and I think that recent history proves that. And I talk about how Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan uh, really um, got got into the details of the public policy that they were trying to promote. They knew it like the back of their hand, and thus they were able to make these convincing arguments. But a lot of it is counterintuitive. The idea that you might lower the tax threshold and you would get more revenue into Her Majesty's Treasury is a counterintuitive argument. Um, the fact that actually using more of the private sector to provide public services uh, can provide more universal benefit is a counterintuitive argument, and you have to be prepared to make it. I think what's so shocking about the Liz Truss government so far is we know that Liz Truss has been in and out of the think tanks over the years, actually penning public policy under her own name. One can't say that she isn't familiar with the arguments, but it was so shocking to me during the leadership election to see her just abandon, I think, half of the argument, which is, you know, low tax, great, growth, great, but you also have to get the size of the state under control. That suggested to me not an inability to make the argument, but an unwillingness to, that she knew it wasn't going to be politically popular, or maybe, as I say in the piece, you know, she had amnesia and it, you know, it, it just uh, fled from her mind during the COVID years that you actually need to balance the budget. But I've been really horrified to see so much applause around what was essentially a heavy spending, big state mini budget. Um, and she is billing this as classical liberalism. She's billing this as, as the free market revolution. And it's simply not. And I think Mark's point about Jeremy Corbyn's a, a really interesting one because, as I say in the piece, you know, on the free market side, we we often talk about how real socialism has never been tried, and this is essentially the case that so many on the left make. You know, well, you know, we wouldn't have gotten the gulags, we wouldn't have had starvation, socialism wouldn't have failed if it had been real socialism. But you know, these things went awry. Um, thankfully, the stakes aren't that high for us. Uh, there's still consensus in the UK that we want a free enterprise capitalist country. And so if things go badly, don't get me wrong, a lot of people are going to get hurt, but we're not at, you know, that level of pain. Um, but Liz Truss cannot turn around and say, oh, well, you know, my economic plan wasn't really tried. Uh, you know, she asked for this job. Uh, it is a really difficult job. I'm grateful I'm not doing it right now. But as I said, she has a responsibility to do it better than she's been doing it so far. And I also think there's a real responsibility for Mark, myself, for the free market movement to honestly break down whether or not her policies are free market or whether or not they're same old big spending, big state agenda. And I actually think a lot of what we've seen so far falls into that latter camp. Mark, you spent some time with Kwasi Kwarteng at the Tory party conference this week. Do you think the U-turn uh, um, on, the, on the 45p tax rate was a big mistake? Uh, do you think they should have stuck with it? it? Probably, yeah, they probably caused the, you know, they've taken all the political hit without the win. And again, this is a classic sort of example of the difficult position that this badly run government, at least in its early days, has put free marketeers in. Because in the abstract, well, not even in the abstract, in practical terms, I would like to see the top rate of income tax fall from 45p to 40p. But I've got to say, it's probably somewhere in my list of my top 400 priorities uh, I, don't, I mean, I'd like to see it happen. Uh, and if somebody makes it happen, I'll generally cheer them on. But why on earth they pick that as their absolute centrepiece, either in political presentational terms or indeed in economic terms, and I'm interested in the second of those, 
it's barely more than a rounding error. I mean, I'd like to see it happen. Don't get me wrong. I think the top rate of tax is too high. I think 40p is probably still too high, if I'm going to be honest. So if I'm asked specifically about that policy, I say, oh, that's good. Yes. But uh, it, it shouldn't have been the priority. In fact, uh, I at the IEA was agitating for if there's any fiscal room, use it to reduce VAT, which uh, also has the benefit of being a counterinflationary measure. You would generally expect prices to fall if VAT is coming down. Um, so you get in this difficult position in which I was defending the cut of the tax rate from 45p to 40p, but it turns out what the problem is, is they hadn't communicated they were going to do this to their own backbenches in the Conservative Party, and they failed to put up any meaningful intellectual argument for it other than growth. And so well, I say that again, growth, you know, they're happy just to go to that, but they've got to explain to people why they think this would assist growth, and they made a complete horlicks of that. I'll give you a bit of a scoop here. When they were getting into trouble uh, over this policy, but long before they abandoned it, this was still at the time where number 10 was saying, this is going to go through and any Conservative MP who says otherwise will be sort of thrown out of the party if they defy it in Parliament. I put to them the suggestion that why don't they run the Laffer curve argument? Why don't they say, uh, all right, well, I know a number of people are worried about this and I can understand that that we would want some revenue flowing in from the high owners. We are going to reduce it to 40p, but we're going to ask the Office for Budget Responsibility over its first year to measure what they genuinely think the change in revenue has been. And we are actually confident. um, We think there is a very good fighting chance, uh, better than 50-50, that revenue streams will go up, um, as they did when we cut the 50p rate to the 45p rate um, back in the day. If they don't, if they don't go up, if we find in a year's time that we're two billion out of pocket on the OBR's forecast, we'll reverse the decision then. Our aim is to get more revenue into the exchequer from high earners. And we think we will achieve that through this policy and the OBR will mark our homework. I think if they put that argument from the outset, or indeed once they were getting into trouble, uh, that would have prevailed. It would have been extremely difficult for a Grant Shapps or a Michael Gove to say, oh, no, 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 I'm I'm not interested in whether more revenue comes into the exchequer from the rich. I'm just interested in the virtual signalling uh, politics of having a, a higher top rate. They would, have, they would have won the day. But it seems to be their approach in, in executing policy or presenting it is completely binary. You either already understand the free market case, in which you're probably nodding along with the Prime Minister and don't, if you like, need an explanation, or you don't understand it, in which case you don't really understand a word that she's saying. Uh, And not having had for 30 years, really, elected politicians, I mean, only a handful, putting forward the case for free market economics, I think Kwasi and Liz have made the error that it doesn't require explanation, that uh, at least voters on their side of the ledger or swing voters sort of intuitively get what the, the boundaries of the debate are, and they don't. And if that failure of explanation and education, explaining why you're doing something, not just for growth, but why you believe this policy will bring it about, uh, then although they're 28, 30% behind in the opinion polls, I could see that tanking further still. Kate, uh, just quickly uh, to, to wrap it up. Um, it's clear, as Mark suggests, it's clear they've made a political horlicks uh, of the mini, mini budget. But economically, um, do you think we just saw a giant freakout um, in the media and perhaps in the markets too? Because actually things uh, have stabilised. The pound is now stronger than it was um, before the mini budget and uh, gilt yields are coming down. They're calming down. So, I mean, was economically, do you think you could make the case that the mini budget was not actually that big a disaster? Certainly not the um, implosion of the British economy that a lot of people made out. I think anyone who was using the word implosion or catastrophe at the time was certainly over-egging it. That wasn't what we were witnessing on the spreadsheets. It was a nervousness about what they had announced. And I think that nervousness was well-placed and indeed seems to have gotten them to change course, especially on the spending cut side and on the spending ledger side. It was a reminder that actually you, you must account for what you're spending. You must account for what you're borrowing. Nobody is expecting the UK government or indeed any government to balance its books this year or next year, especially not after the pandemic. But what was so shocking about, again, what was billed as some kind of classical liberal revolution mini budget uh, was that it took the, I think, faulty premise during COVID that governments can now spend whatever they like and borrow whatever they like and markets will be delighted for them to do it and fund it on the cheap. 
and it said no you know the the old economic rules apply and you know you cannot throw all of this borrowing and day-to-day -day spending onto your agenda and not get some wobble in the markets i, I was delighted to, in, in some respects um just to see that reminder being issued to the government and you know to, this was probably one of the least fiscally disciplined announcements we've had in the 12 years of this conservative government. I think it would have made a Gordon Brown budget blush to some extent because it, it, it wasn't just, oh, you know, we're, we're going to deal with spending later. It was this real assumption, dare I say even a hubris, that they could just do what they wanted and spend what they wanted with impunity. Um, so, you know, it, I, I, I wouldn't have called it an explosion to begin with. It was a nervousness and it is settling down because the, the rhetoric is changing from the government. At the IEAs in conversation uh, with the chancellor, I think Kwasi Kwarteng couldn't help himself but to repeat over and over again that he respected the financial institutions of the UK, that he wanted to get spending down and he wanted to address that side of the ledger. So I think that's what's calming markets down is their response. Um, but it was completely understandable to me why we saw that shakiness over the past few weeks. And it's baffling to me that Liz Truss, who has built herself again as this free marketeer who understands the importance that mark of markets and that markets work, was acting surprised. Uh, I think that was probably the most shocking thing for me. Kate and Mark, thank you very much indeed. Let's move on now from Tory apocalypse to possible global apocalypse and the threat of a nuclear war. And fears about Vladimir Putin's uh, threats to make a nuclear strike uh, either on Ukraine or further afield increased this week after images emerged of a uh, Russian train belonging to the secretive nuclear division travelling towards Ukraine. I'm joined now by Mark Galliotti, who is a political scientist and a frequent contributor to The Spectator, and Elbridge Colby, who is a former official in the US Defence Department. Mark, I'll start with you. In your piece this week, you talk about how the West might respond to a nuclear threat. Uh, and I'm struck that in Western policy establishment terms, uh, there's a lot of talk that Putin is both bluffing and that we need to take his threats seriously. Surely both can't be true. Which one is right? Well, I'm going to be very much of the academic and say, well, both are true. Look, on the one hand, at the moment, he's almost certainly bluffing. The very fact that he felt the need to say that he wasn't bluffing, it's already something of, of a tell. But that doesn't mean that he necessarily will continue to be so. Look, this is very much an existential political struggle for him. Never mind Russia, his own legacy and his own political position are on the line. And with his annexation, his room for some kind of a eventual deal and a renegotiation of what victory means are very limited. So I think the big concern is that at the moment he's bluffing, but there may well come a point when he feels that he's faced with a choice between escalation and capitulation and that he has no option but to escalate. So that's that. And the other issue is, look, by preparing now then we bring about a certain degree of deterrence by denial. We actually make it less likely that he thinks that shaking his nuclear weapon at us is likely to get some kind of political payoff. So I think this is more about being concerned, because after all, we should never ignore nuclear threats from a nuclear power. Elbridge, uh, there's been a lot of discussion uh, this week about whether an, an eye-for-an-eye approach, uh, if Putin does indeed... Um, launch a nuclear strike is appropriate. Uh, the, in Mark's piece, he details how the West might respond, and it could involve um, a very substantial reaction that doesn't involve nuclear retaliation. Do you think uh, a nuclear strike still has to be kept on the table, as it were? Uh, my view is not in response to an attack in Ukraine. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily advise the, the US government or the Western governments to advertise this point. I think a, a degree of ambiguity is important. But Look, let's be realistic. I, Mark probably, know, I'm sure, knows Putin's mind far better than I do. But I, I have a pretty sort of existential level of humility in assessing what what he what he's going to do and what the the Kremlin is going to do. I mean, I think Mark put it well that he is potentially in an existential political struggle. And I'll tell you frankly that the, this is redolent of the kind of scenarios that I've participated in over the years where Russia does use a nuclear weapon. Uh, it's not. It's maybe not quite back against back against the wall. But I look at I look at a couple of things. I mean, there's the the 
you know, predicament in which he, you know, deservedly and, and laudably from our point of view finds himself. But there's also the fact that the Russians have something on the order of 5,000 or more nuclear weapons, as Putin himself pointed out, in many respects, they're more modern than our own, uh, certainly than the US, the British have, have modernized a lot of theirs over the years. Um, and, and the other thing is the Russians have invested a great amount of money and time into, you know, re, re, recapitalizing their nuclear deterrent in the 2000s and afterwards. So including their, their non-strategic, their non-apocalypse kind of, or at least farther away from the apocalypse weapons. And that tells me that they think they have some utility, that it's not just, you know, foolishness. Uh, they, they, they made conscious choice. So I, you know, is, is it a 1% chance, a 0.1% chance, a 10%, 50%? I, I have no idea. But, but if it's sort of above, you know, 0.1%, I'm taking it fairly seriously. Um, you know, my view is that we made a conscious decision, I think rightfully, that, that Ukraine is not in NATO, I, that we should support the Ukrainians, and that's critical, and we should continue to do so. doing so. I think the, the, Brit, uh, the Europeans should take a more leading role in that effort because of the necessity of the United States to focus on Asia. But I do think we should con continue to support the Ukrainians with weapons and so forth and, and aid, et cetera, et cetera. But look, I think very, very clearly and practically, if there's a large-scale military response, even at the conventional level, to a Russian nuclear strike, I think we have to anticipate that we will get into a significant conflagration with the Russians. And the Russians don't have the capability, clearly now, to fight us conventionally. So they, I think, unless they are prepared to accept total capitulation to NATO in that context, then I think we're looking at a nuclear war. Mark, you do detail that what is the response from the West might be a non-nuclear response that would never, nevertheless be devastating for Russia. My thought when reading that was, if the response is so devastating, surely Russia could just carry on um, with nuclear attacks and these would escalate and we'd get into a very, very dangerous description as Elbridge was just describing. Yes, that's certainly the risk. But again, unfortunately, once we reach that stage, we actually have a pretty limited range of options. I mean, basically, we too could, could we could back away and say, actually, come to think of it, Ukraine, you're on your own, which I don't think anyone is, is seriously advocating, certainly at the, at the government level at this point. Or we have to strike back in such a way. This is the problem, though. The art is exactly in the calibration. I mean, I, in the article I mentioned, for example, that uh, according to some German sources I was speaking to, Russian early warning radar systems would definitely not be targeted because of the fear that if we did, that might make a paranoid Moscow think that it's a prelude to launching strategic nuclear strikes. So again, I mean, I think this is the interesting thing. At the moment, you know, we, we are all looking for our ways of sort of calibrating little apocalypses rather than allowing it to, to spiral in, 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 into the big one. But the point is, in a way, we have to be making these preparations in order to be able to present a credible deterrent to precisely any such Russian escalation. And this needs to be being communicated very directly and clearly to the Russians. And you know, as I argue in my article, we might want to be perhaps a little less ambiguous than we've been in the past about the, the menu of, of different kinds of woe that faces Moscow in, in these cases. But when, if, and hopefully never, the push really does come to shove, on this issue, what we have to be is clear that there needs to be some kind of credible strike back, because the point is, it's not just about Putin. We are obviously concerned about him, and he is at the moment the ultimate decider when it comes to, to Russian policy. But there are many people around him. I mean, even if he does decide to launch a tactical nuclear weapon, it's not like in the films where he, you know, a person gets to push a red button. He just simply gives orders to his generals who, in due course, will send orders down the chain of command. One of the things that it would be useful for us to do is to try and communicate also to the generals the terrible costs thereof. So, I mean, again, it, it, it is a ghastly situation to be in and it is unfortunately the reality of the nuclear age, something that we thought we'd never really have to confront. But we are in a position in which we're having to calibrate our deterrent strong enough to make it look to Putin that it's not worth going to these kind of escalatory levels. But on the other hand, not so overpowering that it looks as if we're out to force him into some kind of uh, humiliating you know, defeat. It's not like we're going to be then saying, and we want to have NATO forces in Red Square and a NATO flag fluttering from the Kremlin. You know, they, they have to be the routes whereby he can think, I have been punished, this hasn't worked. But on the other hand, Making some kind of a deal now is a better option 
than just simply going for some kind of escalatory spiral that, as Elbridge says, you know, can, could easily lead us to thermonuclear Armageddon. Well, well, maybe if I could jump in briefly. I mean, look, Kissinger has a good line that the arguments for a war at its beginning need to look as uh, uh, the arguments for a war need to look as good at its end as at its beginning. And with all due respect, Mark, I, I, I think, look, I, I think there's a very good chance that, that a large scale conventional retaliation could lead us exactly to that. I mean, what I'm really worried about, honestly, is that we will slide into a very, very serious situation. I mean, we're already in a very serious situation, but a truly grave situation without having fully front-loaded the consequences and the risks. Graham Allison had a very good piece in the Boston Globe yesterday. Look, I'm not, I'm not in favor of abandoning the Ukrainians. I don't think that's the right call. I think we should support the Ukrainians. They may have to sort of you know, accept some of this realistically. But I mean, the reality is that we're dealing right on Russia's doorstep, obviously leaving aside the, the annexation of the, of the provinces, something that they cl- very clearly care a great deal about. If you look at the speech that Putin gave at the Kremlin, et cetera, et cetera, obviously this could be bluffing, but we just don't know. And I mean, in the conditions that we have always understood, this, this is a, a very, very serious situation. I think we should act accordingly. Mark, I'll let you reply there. Yeah, look, I think the question that this is a, a, a dangerous situation, I don't think that anyone would, would, would question that. Though I would say that I think up to now, Putin is demonstrating that he is a rational actor. He's a rational actor who believes a whole bunch of deeply irrational things. But nonetheless, this is not a man who is insane. This is not a man who is willing to kind of go down in some kind of global Gutedammerung as long as he brings his enemies down at the same time. And we shouldn't forget that they themselves will also be having similar conversations about how far can they push and, and, and what the risks are. But the key point is that, look, there are no good outcomes if it actually comes to the use of tactical nuclear weapons by the Russians. You know, do we respond too easily? Do we respond too quickly? Do we end up actually um, giving, giving way and forcing the Ukrainians to accept the price of our safety? So this is why I think actually addressing all these questions now, looking at the whole menu of options and communicating the, the, the kind of threats that, that would face the Russians if they went this far, none of which, it's worth stressing, involve NATO troops crossing Russian borders. You know, these are all about long range strikes to damage and degrade capability. They're not the sort of thing that you can then spin as we knew it. The Russians want to, uh, the, the NATO wants to conquer the, the lands of the Russians. So I think it's all about communicating this credibly in advance to make sure we're not in this position where we have to make these ghastly choices. Can, can I just, I mean, the, the problem, Mark, is that um, the, the American way of war, which is, of course, NATO is sort of, from the Russian point of view, is, is a cadet to the Americans, is exactly to take down the Russian sort of aerospace and sort of um, C4ISR, basically the, the, the brain network of the Russian military. So, so long range strikes are exactly the precursor to what they, what they, what they fear, whether they actually believe we will or not. I mean, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult to equilibrate. And I don't think, I don't think we need to get to nuclear apocalypse for this to become exceptionally damaging for us. What if we get into a tit for tat situation of, of, um, you know, discriminate strikes, for instance, using long range uh, cruise missiles with with lower yield nuclear weapons on us, and they're fired at you know if the situation escalates, they're fired into European NATO because if they fire at the United States, that's probably at the end of the as- escalatory ladder for the Russians. They're aware of that. But what if they go after military targets, for instance, within European NATO? I think this is what we need to anticipate. And and there are some people, not not yourself, but prominent American figures and I think European figures who are calling for wiping out. Russian forces in, in Ukraine. Well, I mean, that, that will, that, I mean, first of all, that's a, that is a war between the United States and NATO, uh, excuse me, between NATO and, and, and Russia. So I think we've really got to be very, very clear. There aren't any good options. What I would suggest, just to be clear, is definitely upping the costs on Russia, particularly in the sanctions world, politically, uh, in terms of actually increasing support to the Ukrainians, again, with the Europeans in the lead, it really needs to happen. But I think we've got to be very clear. What, I'm, what I fear is an analogy of the Korea 1950 situation where the UN forces you know, under MacArthur were at the, went to the Yalu and dismissed Chinese warnings. I, I could be wrong. I, I could certainly be wrong. They may decide to eat it. 
But I, you know, the thing is, we won't know. And people are looking for these indicators of Russian nuclear employment. And I think we'll be pretty lucky if we see it at any given time. I think they, they've integrated, you know, they have nuclear forces are something they've exercised and sustained. They know we're watching. So they may want us to see that. They may not, though. It may be a relatively short amount of time. But I mean, Elbridge, you, you say you you uh, you still want to carry on supporting the Ukrainians. If we're in a position, and it seems to be that we increasingly are, where Russia considers that it is already at war with NATO and not just Ukraine, um, how do how does the West possibly get itself out of this situation without uh, increasingly dramatic actions and possibly nuclear actions by by Russia? Well, I mean, the Russians don't actually think they're at war with NATO. I mean, the people who are talking about World War III and stuff, I think that's deeply irresponsible. That's obviously Russian propaganda. If they were at war with with NATO, we would be seeing it. I mean, there are submarines operating in the Atlantic and so forth, I'm sure, at any given time. They can really still hurt us. I mean, I I know the Russian conventional military has performed uh, really poorly. I've been surprised by it, thankfully for us all. But I still have a lot of respect for their aerospace and nuclear forces, or in their, particularly their, their sort of long-range strike forces. So they clearly, I mean, their rhetoric is one thing, but they are fighting a limited war, which is actually fairly advantageous to us in the sense that, that NATO is not directly engaged militarily. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I, we are not in World War III. World War III would look very, very different, trust me. <laughs> Uh, Mark, I wondered actually, um, just uh, while if I could carry on the apocalyptic tone of, of my questions, um, I wondered how worried British people should be because Russian officials and Russian media have suggested that, uh, that, uh, that a nuclear strike on Britain is quite possible and doable. How possible and doable do you think it actually is? Well, I think we should stress that it's not so much officials as kind of pundits and talking heads and the usual sort of geopolitical shock jocks who've been saying this. And look, it reflects to a degree the place of Britain in Russia's geopolitical imaginary. Um, I mean, back when I was was still being allowed to travel in in Russia, I was often struck by the degree to which there was this sort of strange mix of extreme Anglophilia, as well as an assumption that Britain was still, even after the great game has been a long time ago, still their most subtle and devious adversary. Um, and I have to confess that I, I found it quite charming that people think we matter quite so much. So in that context, when they talk about striking Britain, it's in some ways because they see us as both one of their key antagonists, but also clearly a much softer target than the United States. But the key thing is that I really don't think we should be taking this particularly seriously. There is a whole almost genre, shall we say, of geopolitical oriented discussions on on Russian TV that in some ways is more of a kind of gladiatorial entertainment than Newsnight. And in that context, yes, we need to worry because, I mean, unlike Elbridge, I mean, I think the Russians do regard themselves as being at war with the West. It's a, it's a different kind of war. It's a very 21st century war. It's one that is precisely being fought through through economics and politics and law and culture and disinformation and so forth. But unless one is willing to discount the rhetoric of all the key security-oriented leaders within Russia, from Putin to his defence minister to the Secretary of the Security Council and so forth, who all use the language of war when they're talking about this this, this confrontation with the West, not just with with Ukraine. So, yes, they regard themselves as being at war with the West, the collective West, and particularly the so-called Anglo-Saxons. But nonetheless they are subtle and smart enough to draw a distinction between a shooting war and a non-kinetic political war. Well, as long as they stay in the reign of hybrid war and all that, they can call it whatever they want. When, when, we, when they start launching you know, attacks on us, particularly nuclear attacks, then, I'll, then I'll be, that's new World War III to me. Mark Elbridge, I think we'll end it there. Let's hope that we don't have to have a more urgent version of this conversation in the near future. Let's move now to Latin America, and in particular Brazil, uh, where we've just had the first round of the presidential elections. And Jair Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president, has defied the pollsters uh, and come quite close to his rival, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva. Um, Da Silva still has a slight advantage, uh, but going ahead into the second round, which will take place on October 30th, the race remains pretty tight. I'm joined now by Andrew Downey, who is a long-term, long-time Latin America correspondent. 
Andrew, um, why did Bolsonaro prove the pollsters so wrong? What did the pollsters get wrong? The pollsters actually got Lula's support more or less correct, you know, within the margin of error. Um, the big difference or the big surprise was that the, the polls suggested that Lula might win in the first round. Uh, as you know, Brazil's election is a, it's a, you need a majority in the first round. If there's no majority, you go to a runoff. So there was a lot of hope in the Lula camp that he might squeeze past the 50% mark in the first round. And that was really proven to be a fallacy. Um, the difference between the two candidates was only uh, 4%, which is you know next to nothing. Lula had 48.2%, Bolsonaro had 44.3%, 43.4%, I think. Um, but the difference was, was quite small and was a lot less than what the polls had suggested. And looking ahead to the second round on October the 30th, Lula remains the uh, favourite. Uh, and in fact, given that um, the parties that did uh, came third and fourth uh, have thrown in their support for um, uh, Lula, it seems quite likely uh, that he'll win. Is that not right? Yeah, Lula is definitely the favourite. Uh, in Brazilian history, no candidate who's won in the first round has gone on to lose in the second round. And uh, no candidate who won in the first round has got less votes than they did, uh, has got no, has got less votes in the second round. So Lula only needs a couple of percent to, to get above that 50% threshold. Um, as you said, Simon Tibet, who was in third place with 5%, and Ciro Gomez, who's in, uh, sorry, 4%, and uh, Ciro Gomez, who was in fourth with 3%, they've both given their support to Lula. So everything suggests that he should just get those th those few votes that he needs to get over the line. The only thing is that the momentum is now with Bolsonaro, and he, of course, is he is the president. He has you know discretionary spending. You know he's going to throw everything at at the election that he can in the next in the next four weeks to try and you know to try and turn things around. And it's not beyond the realms of possibility that he will do that. But Lula is definitely the favourite at this point. And there are quite a few parallels have been made between uh, Donald Trump and Bolsonaro, uh, and certainly their movements seem to speak to each other. Um, the, the Trump team and Bolsonaro's team had connections, and certainly the language around this election has been quite similar to what we saw in the American presidential election of 2020, where both sides are firing um, allegations of uh, fraud uh, and rigging at each other. How nasty has it got and how much nastier, nastier could it get after October 30th? Well, I think the best way to illustrate this is, is this two days after the election and the main story was about masonry, believe it or not, Freemasonry. It was a, a, this crazy um, video that resurfaced of Bolsonaro meeting with masons several years ago before he was president and how this this all of a sudden morphed into he's the devil, uh, masons are the devil, uh, you know, there's a goat in the picture, uh, what does all this mean? Uh, Lula was forced to come out with a, an Instagram post and say, I am a Christian, I believe in God. And the fact that this has been the main dis point of discussion at the start of the second round just goes to show us you know, how crazy this is. We're not discussing it, discussing issues. We're not discussing policy. We're discussing these crazy fake news, all this disinformation that's coming out with both sides really trying to hurt each other and to make each other, you know, look bad. It's not who has the best policies and who looks good. It's, it's who looks the worst uh, and who really is going to make Brazil suffer. Uh, and Bolsonaro has suggested that he will not concede the election if indeed he does lose the second round, um, do you anticipate that he will try and hold on to power? Well, everything suggests that he will challenge the results if he loses. Um, he has said that there's only he only has three options, which is you know, be killed, be jailed or victory. So, you know, that's a, a bit of a, you know, a worrying statement by, by any manner of means. So the big problem will be for Lula is that if, if he does win, 
and Bolsonaro does contest the election, then Bolsonaro has a, a, a fairly rabid uh, following. And it's very possible that he can put people out on the streets, he can block highways, he can cause all sorts of trouble. And that would force Lula into all sorts of negotiations. He would have to spend a lot of his political capital in order just to ensure that he will take power on, on January the 1st. And that would be a, a major setback for him uh, before he's even started. Do you think we're looking then uh, at a possible civil war in Brazil? I know that's been predicted before and hasn't come true, but do you think that that's, the, that's how dangerous the situation is? Well, a civil war is a, is a, major, is a major event. I mean, I, 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 I don't hear people talking about a civil war. I mean, I, I do hear people talking about, you know, unrest and, and you know, increasing polarisation. The polarisation over the last four years here has been, you know, has been as bad as anything we've seen in the US or, or the UK or anywhere else. Um, you know, a civil war would be a real step a lot, a lot further. And I, I don't think people are talking about that just yet. Um, but it really, it, it really is clear that both sides are, 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 are really at, at, the, at extremes. They're really at each other's throats. So, you know, we'll see what happens over the next four weeks and the next, the next couple of months. And then, of course, the next four years. Well, let's talk a little bit about Lula, because um, it's odd to outside observers to understand uh, why he is so popular still when, uh, as far as we know, a lot of Brazilians uh, thought that his regime was deeply corrupt when he was president. Uh, he was jailed. Um, he makes himself out to be a, a victim of great injustice. But uh, all of Bolsonaro's fans and certainly some other Brazilians too still think that he is a uh, corrupt figure. Um, where does his support come from? Well, Lula... You know, has one of the has one of the world's most incredible political biographies. You know, he grew up very, very poor. You know, he 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 didn't finish school at first. He 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 grew up one of 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 I think he was eight children. Um, his father left him when he was when he was young. Uh, he grew up in the northeast with no you know with, with no indoor toilet, with no sewage, with no electricity. And he pulled himself up to to get an education. He he was shining shoes at one point to make a living. Uh, he got a job in a, in a, as a metal worker in a factory. He became a union leader. He educated himself, uh, and he fought for, you know, he fought for what Brazilians call o povo, you know, the, the people, you know, the poor people, and that is is a, is a very attractive thing in a country like Brazil. And he did amazing things when he was in power. You know, a lot of the things that you just spoke about, the corruption and the and the problems that he faced, a lot of that, you know, a lot of that is true. Obviously, there's no denying that. But a lot of people feel a real uh, you know, a real tenderness and a real love for Lula because of the way he fought inequality like no president has ever fought inequality in Brazil. And inequality, of course, is one of Brazil's biggest problems. It always has been. And uh, his government, which was, it benefited from, uh, you know, it had a firm base, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, the social democratic president that came before him. He had he had kind of put Brazil on the, on the street and narrow. He gave Lula a foundation to start from. Lula built on that. Uh, he was helped by uh, high commodity prices, which which brought him a, a lot of money, and he used that money to to pull lots of people out of poverty. And that is a that is a real incredible thing for Brazil, and, and a lot of people remember uh, remember that very fondly. A president who just looked out for them, and that had never really happened before. Do you think that the suspicion on the right uh, towards this election um, is partly to do with the scandals? Uh, of Lula in the past. I mean, I think it was the Mentelau scandal um, where it was revealed that uh, Lula's party, the work Workers' Party, were buying votes um, of other parliamentarians. Um, and there's some doubt as to whether Lula was directly involved or not. Um, but they are seen as, as very corrupt, are they not? Yeah, the, the big, I think... One of the ways you have to look at this election is that it's it's anti-petista, anti-petismo against the work. It's it's who, those who hate the Workers' Party and will never vote for the Workers' Party, and those who hate Bolsonaro and will never vote for Bolsonaro. That's kind of the the, the best way to frame this because, you know, I have I, I have lots of friends and, and family who will say, you know, you know, we don't like Bolsonaro. We think he's vulgar. We think he's uncouth. We hate the way that he mocked people during the pandemic, but he's not Lula, because they see. The corruption that that went on in the PT government as beyond the pale, uh, and they are quite prepared to overlook 
all the corruption that's happened under the Bolsonaro government. But it's, it's, it's again, it's just this polarisation. It's people who hate one side and who hate the other side. And that's really the framing of this election. Which, again, is quite similar to America, isn't it? It's very similar to America, yeah. I mean, as you said earlier on, you know, you've had guys like Bannon and, you know, coming out and, and, and uh, advising, uh, advising Bolsonaro. You had Trump last week coming out and saying, you know, my friends in Brazil, you should vote for Bolsonaro. It's, uh, you know, Bolsonaro is often referred to as the tropical Trump. Thank you, Andrew. We'll, we'll end it there, but uh, we will look with interest into what happens uh, on October the 30th. And lastly, uh, cigarettes. Ladies and gentlemen, I have to bring you the sad news that Rod Little, our much-loved columnist, has given up smoking. Rod, uh, you said that the nannies have got to you and they've won and you've quit. What actually made you quit? Well, I woke up one morning a year ago and decided I was never going to smoke again. And what I told everybody at the time was that this was a glorious epiphany and a testament to my extraordinary willpower. But what it actually was, was a, was a capitulation to the forces of uh, coercive control and conformity. Uh, because, I mean, it was lots of things, wasn't it? I mean, not least the fact that uh, I was spending 800 quid a month on cigarettes, around about 60 a day, um, 13 odd quid per packet. Uh, you can, uh, probably even Kate can do the maths on that, I would have thought. Um, which is an unconscionable amount of money. And of course, most of that isn't on the cigarettes. Most of that is is on this sanctimonious and hypocritical tax which the government levies from us. But anyway, it annoyed me. Similarly, I was annoyed at at having to go on long journeys without a cigarette and then being sort of harassed when I got off a train to go outside the station precinct and even further and further away from, from a station whenever I wanted to have a a cigarette, to, to leave a pub in the middle of winter with the North Sea wind uh, buffeting my head while I go out for a cigarette or to leave a restaurant in the middle of the meal. And what I mean, I suppose, is that all these scumbags who introduced these policies, who demanded these policies, whether it be the GMC or Ash, uh, or indeed people like uh, Matt Hancock, uh, all of them, um, they won. They, they won, and so I no longer smoke. Well, I'm sad. I don't know if you, have you ever read Garson Keeler's uh, story, The Last Smoker on Earth? No, no, I haven't. No, it's I haven't. about the last smoker on Earth being surrounded by the police. I thought, in my mind's eye, that was often you. Yeah. Well, well, that's how I felt. And, I, and I, you know, I mean, I will never smoke again because the habit's kicked and it's gone. Um, and it, it didn't take any time at all. I think that's another thing which is which is part of, you know, the establishment lies, which is that it's a, a terribly hard thing to give up. It, not remotely, it was a it was a doddle, mate, I'm telling you. Uh, it 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 I, I had slight cravings for two days and then they went. Uh, and that that was it. You didn't mention it in the piece, but um you, I think you should have mentioned it actually, that um smoking once saved your life in New Hampshire. It did, it did, yes. Uh, tell, take us through that story, please. I was in New Hampshire, um, uh, which contrary to its state motto, which is live free or die or whatever it is, uh, is one of the least free states in, in the USA. Um, and we were staying in the countryside in a rather agreeable, one of those white clapboard places uh, in the, in the near a forest. Uh, and uh, because you couldn't smoke, of course, anywhere near the house, uh, I went for a walk first thing in the morning uh, for my early morning cigarette into the into the woods uh, in my uh, black trench coat. <laughs> it's, and uh, uh, only later did I find out that there I was, sort of slightly hunched as ever uh, with my cigarette. It was only when I took my cigarette out and lit it that the hunters decided I wasn't a black bear and therefore shouldn't actually be shot through the head on what was the first day of the bear hunting season. Uh, and it was very, very close indeed. It was only when they thought, hey, that's a bear. Hey, why is it smoking? Uh, that, uh, that I actually... So, yeah, cigarettes saved my life on that occasion. They've saved my life on many occasions. You know, they've, they've, they've given me great sucker and joy and pleasure. You said you like the you like the cough in the morning. You found pleasure in it. Well, this, uh, you see, I occasionally have a cough in the morning these days, but it's just a kind of clear your throat, anemic little cough. 
there's no viscous liquid to it, uh, which is which is you know I I found that I, there was something rather um, rakish and 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 loose about that that expectorant of mine, uh, and I slightly miss it. And you're you're drinking less too. At the same time, you've reduced drinking. People say you should well, only give up one thing at a time. Wasn't quite the same time. About halfway, uh, about in uh, April this year, I decided that because I was able to cut out smoking completely, I would reduce drinking by about ninety percent, um, simply because I could do it, and also because it would annoy my wife, um, uh, Alicia. Um, who was approving of the fact I'd given up smoking, but a bit arsy about it, given that she still does smoke. So I just thought, yeah, and that wasn't a problem either. Uh, unfortunately, I've put on a bit of weight because instead of drinking uh, a, a nice gin and tonic and, and uh, lots of wine, I've been drinking Snapple and cups of tea. Um, so... So I will die of obesity. The first four weeks after uh, giving up smoking, I thought, I'm never going to die because I've given up smoking. That is how deep the propaganda went. I, I, I was soon disabused of that notion by catching COVID almost immediately. <laughs> you do believe the, 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 the theory, I think there's some data to back it up, that smokers uh, do not suffer as badly from COVID. I don't, I don't, no, I, I know it's not quite that. I think smokers do suffer as badly from COVID, but I think uh, uh, it's the case and it's beyond contention uh, that if you smoke, you are far, far, far less likely to get it. And that's been borne out in loads of studies, USA, China, uh, France, they actually started giving nicotine taps to people. Uh, you know, uh, um, so there's no, you know, uh, it's it's the things they won't tell you because the overriding message is that you've got to give up. Uh, smoking also helps in the in, if you have Parkinson's, for example. Uh, there are a number of illnesses where smoking is beneficial, um, but it's not something you're told anymore because of the weight of this this kind of uh, 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 elephantine propaganda we get given, which which just obliterates everything else. Well, Rod, uh, smoking or not, I hope you live forever so that you can write many, many more Spectator columns. Thank you, Freddie. I shall do my best. That is it for this week. Uh, I would like to thank once again our great sponsors, Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. They will provide you with the expertise you need to build your wealth with confidence. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Also, you should, if you do not already, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spectator TV. Um, you can do that by hitting the button at the bottom of your screen, and then after that, clicking the bell at the top of your screen. Uh, that will give you a reminder so that you never, ever miss an episode. That's it for this week. Thank you very much indeed. Mm -hmm.